Welcome, everyone, to another edition of Upon Further Review, Frontline Conversations with Dean Bobo. I am Larry Bobo, Dean of the Social Sciences here at Harvard University, and it is my pleasure to be talking with William C. Kirby today. He is the T.M. Chang Professor of China Studies at Harvard and the Spangler Family Professor of Business Administration at the Harvard Business School, as well as a Harvard University Distinguished Service Professor and currently serving as chair of the Harvard China Fund. We'll be talking about his new book, Empires of Ideas, Creating the Modern University from Germany to America to China. Welcome, Bill. <laughs> Good to have you. I agree. It's it's great to be with you. All right. So um, you, of course, come to this this project, this book, uh, with a background, plainly enough, as an accomplished historian with respect to the uh, the topic of of how to understand the role and evolution of leading institutions of higher learning, and with uh, considerable experience, particularly here at Harvard, as a faculty member, as a department chair as a center director, as literally the dean of the Faculty of, of Arts and Sciences, and now one also affiliated with um, um, the business school. And I wonder if before leaping into the core of the material and, and the argument uh, you put for, before us, you might reflect on how that collection of, of experiences and career commitments shaped the emergence of this intellectual agenda for you at this point in your career. Well, thank you, Gary. It's a great question, and it's one that I hadn't thought enough about in, uh, until completing this book. But it, you know, I was uh, both as an undergraduate and uh, as a, initially as a doctoral student, I was primarily in European history, um, and I actually came to Harvard to work with Franklin Ford, uh, former dean of the Faculty of Arts and Sciences. Um, but I had a strong interest also in China at that time. And I came to work also with John Fairbank um, uh, and actually did both both, both uh, areas, um, uh, Europe and, and, and China, through my graduate career. And then when I went on the job market, somebody offered me a job in the China field, and that really focused the mind. <laughs> <laughs> as as an employment often does, <laughs> as as it absolutely does. But I I had the, you know, part of the evolution of an intellectual interest is really the mentors you had, and I could not have had two more extraordinary and many other uh, extraordinary faculty, uh, Philip Kuhn, uh, in particular. But uh, Fairbank and uh, Ford together were remarkable individuals, both of whose careers dated back to the nineteen thirties and forties. And both of whom were generous of time and spirit uh, with a young graduate student. The great thing about Harvard is, and our history department at that point in time, is that if you knew what you wanted to do more or less, nobody would stop you. We had rules and regulations, but not very many, as it turned out. And so I was able to bring bring these two fields uh, together. And then it's just an, one of the accidents of history that Franklin is, of course, Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Sciences in the 1960s, and then later I become yes. his successor as Dean. And Fairbank founded what we now know as the Fairbank Center, and years later I become director of his center, as it were. Uh, no design to that. Uh, but 
it does explain in some sense that my interest and, and the way I've approached modern Chinese history throughout my career is to focus on the internationalization of China, how China has been shaped by uh, and has adopted international influences, um, uh, shaped them to its own uh, will at times, uh, but how nothing important in the history of 20th century China does not have uh, an international dimension to it. Uh, when you hear President Xi Jinping talk about uh, socialism with Chinese characteristics, uh, there are some certain Chinese characteristics that endure from uh, earlier periods of Chinese history. But there's nothing in Chinese history about having a Politburo or a standing uh -huh. committee. All of this is adopted in lock, stock, and barrel uh, from their neighbors to the north, from the Soviet Union. And it was, of course, agents of the Soviet Union that founded the Chinese Communist Party. So uh, this, all of this was central to my, my interests. Um, uh, I wrote a book uh, which came out of my dissertation on an earlier period of Chinese international interaction in the interwar period and particularly the strong influence uh, that Germany had yes. on the regime of Chiang Kai-shek uh, from the late 1920s uh, through to the late 1930s and early 1940s and then quite frankly uh, with considerable influence beyond by individual advisors in to in Taiwan in the 19 in the 1950s uh, but my interest in looking at China's internationalization through higher education is a much more recent one. That comes from my time as dean. Yes. A time you get to know, you know, as a faculty member or as a student, you think you know your institution. But as you know, you learn a lot more uh, when you take on a leadership role. No, this is very true, <laughs> especially at a place as decentralized as, as and siloed as Harvard is. <laughs> it, it, it is. A, a, and... Uh, as dean, you have to know your own institution. You have to, as Sun Tzu said, know yourself and know your enemies. That is to say, know the competition. Mm -hmm. And if you do that, as Sun Tzu said, a thousand battles, no, a hundred battles, a hundred victories. But uh, life is never that easy as a dean. And uh, But I came to be fascinated, actually, with the business of higher education, with the organization of higher education, and how institutions rise and fall and how they try to stay on top my largest job uh, you know i had three priorities when i was dean uh, one was the refocusing of the faculty on undergraduate education um, and with a renewed general education program the second was internationalization and completing the Center for International Studies, the, uh, the CGIS. And third, our deep investment in the life sciences where we had fallen far behind. And in those three areas are central to Harvard's and the FAS's capacity to maintain uh, leadership in the world of American higher education. There are others as well. Of course. But let me let, let me ask a, a question here about this, because before we leap into the the details of the book, but but your concern both with internationalization and uh, leadership as an institution of, of higher learning. As I think about the entirety of the book, I found myself regarding your project here as interweaving kind of three emotions or commitments. 
The first of these, in some respects, was a passion about the importance of great universities to the good of society. The second one was certainly a concern, if not a worry, about a number of trends, especially in the U.S. today, but abroad as well, that are changing the context in which universities operate and making it a much more challenging environment uh, for them to continue to play that same role, and in particular for long-standing leaders like Harvard to remain in that position, but yet also a sort of abiding faith that universities are going to adapt and serve as well in the future. I don't know if, if that, that observation resonates with you um, or if I've misread it. No, you've, you've read it quite accurately. You've read it uh, uh, and you've expressed it actually better than I did in some sense. You know, a sense, you know, uh, as I argue that the, uh, with the birth of the modern research university in the early 19th century, it's closely tied to national missions. And it's closely tied in that case to the to the Prussian mission, but also then to the German mission uh, later on. And and with the sense that it's also to a public mission beyond that of simply the world of science, of Wissenschaft, of creating knowledge. And I think this is one of the things that has happily been such a distinguishing feature of Harvard. We are a private university, uh, um, although we were founded as a public institution. Uh, we were a state-owned state institution, you could argue, in our <laughs> first century and more. But today we are a private university, but with an enduring sense of public purpose. And there are moments in this chapter, in the Harvard chapter, where you can see the absolutely the mobilization, indeed, of the Harvard faculty and students for national purposes, particularly in the case of the Second World War, before, during, and after uh, the Second World War. But this ethos remains very strong at Harvard and really across its schools, and it's one of our distinguishing features. Mm -hmm. The concerns that I have uh, have to do with the cutting off of these threads of conductivity between university and public purpose, at least as far as many people in the public are concerned. Mm -hmm. And so you see the defunding of public higher education in the United States in 44 out of 50 American states. And my chapter on Berkeley is kind of the big warning signal in this book about what can happen uh, to the leading public university in the United States through chronic uh, uh, defunding that can lead to dysfunction. Um, and this is a concern that I, and we can talk about this later, I think has implications also for the great private universities such as Harvard. But I do have faith in the endurance of these institutions. You know, universities have been around for a millennium and more. They've outlasted many different forms of government. Uh, and the modern research university, again, not that old, 212 years old to be precise, if you dated from the founding of the University of Berlin in 1810. The modern research university has been remarkably successful in Europe, in North America, now in Asia, uh, at creating knowledge, at expanding education, at expanding uh, knowledge, uh, bringing faculty and students together. It's structures in which the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, as we call it, or what Humboldt called the philosophical faculty, remain at the center remarkably. So many 
decades later of the modern research university. And education in the liberal arts and sciences is not confined simply to liberal arts colleges in this country, but can be found in almost every major uh, research university. And so just as Harvard uh, survived the colonial period, uh, survived uh, the birth of the American Republic, uh, the Civil War, and many wars thereafter. Universities have survived enormous Sturm und Drang, as the Germans would say, over the last uh, 200 plus years, and remain engines of innovation and engines of economic growth wherever they are strong. Yeah, great. And uh, in some respects, I I envy you that that great historical perspective because I you know as the the sort of naive observer and and kind of contemporary scholar of of race that that I am, I don't have that full lens and and perspective and the the uh, pessimism and anxiety of the present tends to loom uh, ever, ever large uh, in, in that sort of context. So I'm happy to, to hear of your faith and indeed to read the full broad perspective you, you bring to this. Let me do one other kind of opening point before really um, leaping into the, the substance of the book, some of which you've already laid out here. Uh, there, there are kind of three surprising start points to your, your work. One is in effect that this is a tale that really doesn't begin in England. With, with Oxford and, and Cambridge, but, but rather in Germany. And that is in part a choice on your part, but also something with real clear intellectual foundations as to why that's the choice. Kind of secondly, uh, another kind of starting point is that Harvard itself was not always the intellectually distinguished uh, place that, that we uh, regarded as, as being today or, or for uh, much of its history. Uh, and that there was a, a transformation that, that had to take place and a sort of model that was drawn upon in doing that. And um, thirdly, and perhaps surprisingly there too, uh, the path for the future uh, uh, may ultimately in the U.S. belong to Duke University, maybe more than it does to Harvard. And yep. that indeed, it may not be an American university that leads to the way, but, but one based in China. Um, so I, I wonder if you could could speak to those surprising starting points. <laughs> well, <clears throat> of course, Harvard owns its life to a graduate, or at least its name, to a graduate of Cambridge University. And so uh, we have deep ties, of course, to uh, uh, English institutions. And Oxford and Cambridge have been among the world's leading universities longer than anyone, anyone else. And so um, I am- um, Well, and Italy, the University of Bologna, yes. <laughs> Well, longer there, but but I don't think anyone would confuse Bologna with Oxford and Cambridge today. Okay. <laughs> and so they have had a remarkable capacity for self-renewal over time. But if you look at my topic, which is really the focus of the modern research university, which is a new thing in 1810, the idea that a university is devoted to the creation of knowledge uh, and many other aspects of a, of a university, um, and to do so with considerable um, in, uh, institutional autonomy, uh, to do so in an atmosphere of freedom of teaching and freedom of learning uh, in all of this, but particularly the, the concept of a research university is new uh, in the early 19th century. And 
the Germans set global standards in the 19th century. Uh, the Americans set global standards by the end of the 20th century, without question. And so a question for this book is whether the Chinese at the end of the day will do the same in the 21st uh, century. So as great as Oxford and Cambridge are, and of course Harvard adopted many of its, you know, the, 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 the way in which liberal arts education has occurred in the United States owes a great deal to Oxford and Cambridge and to British models more broadly. Um, uh, Harvard College uh, was for much of its first uh, several centuries just a pale reflection of an Oxbridge College. Uh, but we became a serious research university only by emulating the German model in the latter part of the 19th century. And believe it or not, the same can be said of Oxford and Cambridge. Uh, they were great teaching institutions and they have done the remarkable thing of becoming great research universities uh, while maintaining and a strong ethos of commitment to undergraduate education, uh, which is uh, and should be the envy of many. But Britain itself and British universities did not set global models, uh, did not, uh, and one that would be as compelling as that of this quite new German model in the 19th century. Yeah. And if you think of Harvard, to get to your second point here, <clears throat> Harvard is you know, uh, the best known because it's the oldest American university. Uh, it's very influential in political and, and cultural terms throughout its history. But if you look at the world of research universities, probably as late as 1920, if we had had rankings of the kind that we have today, eight of the top 10 universities in the world would have been German and the other two Oxford and Cambridge, not us. And even within the United States, the only early ranking that I could find of the research output of universities, uh, Harvard ranked number one because we had more researchers mm -hmm. than anyone else. But if you looked at what university was pound for pound, the best university in the United States, it wasn't Harvard, it wasn't Hopkins, it wasn't Chicago, it wasn't Berkeley, it wasn't Stanford. It was Clark University in Worcester, Massachusetts, which was the Caltech of its day. And an interesting story of how universities can rise and actually not continue to rise uh, and give ideas to others who then pilfer their faculty. Uh, so Harvard really becomes distinguished with the founding of the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences in the 19th century. And then under the presidency of President Conant, before, during, and after the Second World War, truly distinguished also uh, in the natural and applied sciences. Uh, it is from that moment, and really the war and post-war moment, that the great kind of evolution of a Harvard that is a worldwide brand, not just in terms of age uh, and tradition, but as, as a leading research university uh, takes off. Great. So let's look back for a moment and flesh out more fully the origins of that German 
founding of kind of the model for a great research university, and maybe begin with with uh, asking you a bit about the the, the role and and uh, uh, perspective and agenda of a figure like Wilhelm von Humboldt and and the the place he occupies in the creation of the modern research university, particularly in Germany. Yeah. Well, what's interesting is that the, the, the University of Bergen, which is the kind of mother of all of us, uh, was founded in the aftermath of a political and military disaster, Prussia's loss to Napoleon. So we can thank Napoleon in some sense <laughs> uh, for this. And the king, King Frederick William III, says something that I, you know, I've never found in, in the words of any other politician or leader anywhere. He said, we will replace with intellectual strength what we have lost in physical strength. And he deputes Humboldt, and Humboldt finds many collaborators, uh, to found the, a modern teaching institution, as it was originally called, but a one that becomes quickly uh, imbued with the re research ethos to found this institution on several of the principles that I've set out, uh, which are, of course, to be founded by the state, uh, to be central in the education of leaders of the state and of citizens of the state, but also with the fundamental mission to advance knowledge wherever it goes. And to do so with, even though the state is paying all the bills, with institutional autonomy from the state to a very considerable degree. You could choose who comes in and comes out. The faculty is chosen uh, uh, not exclusively, but largely by themselves. What to study is chosen by themselves. There's a unity of teaching and learning. The idea that knowledge comes as we do in our own graduate school, in the seminar format or in laboratories uh, by faculty and students working uh, closely together. And critically, the principles of Lehrfreiheit, the freedom to teach, and Lernfreiheit, the freedom to learn. Never perfect uh, in 19th century Germany, to be sure, uh, but articulated more clearly there than anywhere else. And it is this combination of, and, and of course, it's a model that brings, it would not have succeeded if it did not bring, most importantly, the best faculty to the university. That was one of Humboldt's important principles. And as you know, as dean, and as I recall as dean, the most important thing a dean can do is to bring the best faculty to the university and make sure that they actually meet students now and again. <laughs> but the uh, this and so a call to Berlin became the height of anyone's career, particularly, of course, of a German scholar, but of anyone's career in the 19th century. Uh, German PhDs became de rigueur for those who sought advancement in American higher education at the, uh, in the last half of the 19th century. Uh, and German models of scholarship uh, really pervade the United States. The founding of Hopkins in Chicago uh, as, as research universities and really graduate universities. And even Stanford University, founded uh, by that great but ornery philanthropist uh, leland leland stanford leland, oh leland stanford yeah. the motto that stanford adopts as it turns out is in german uh die luft der freiheit weht the wind of freedom blows almost nobody at stanford can pronounce this today <laughs> but once upon a time they could um, 
No, that's that's absolutely fascinating. But let me let me pull out a, a, a few other threads of of this here. And so uh, uh, another German term that captures part of what um, Humboldt set out to fashion, right, was that this was to be um, uh, education pursued as Bildung, as as uh, yes. shaping the whole person, uh, not something that was I'm, I'm going to get the other term wrong. Ubung or Ubung, uh, that was just you, narrowly you focused yeah. on practical training, uh, but right. it really was to be broad gauge and make that Im imprint on on kind of a, a, a reflective person, a thoughtful citizen, right? That's exactly right. And that's, you know, in some sense, you can still see this ethos today reflected in our general education curriculum, not only at Harvard, but in liberal arts college, colleges of liberal arts and sciences, both in the United States and around the world. Um, and it is a sense that the philosophical faculty, what he called the philosophical faculty, had to be at the heart of the university, um, what we call the faculty of arts and sciences. And this includes, you know, so the philosophical faculty includes what we call the arts and sciences. Um, and he, and I think it would be fair to say that he and uh, the, the most important Humboldtians around the world uh, later on were not particularly excited about professional schools. Uh, you know, in, in uh, pre-Bergen times, the larger reason that individuals would go to university was to practice law uh, or to go into one or another of a set of kind of prescribed uh, and long-standing professions. Uh, this was to be a different form of education and a different form of citizen to emerge from it. And that, of course, uh, what's, what's very interesting is that that aspect of German universities really gets lost, particularly uh, after, uh, uh, you know, if one said the wind of freedom blows uh, as a German motto, that wind of freedom stopped blowing in Germany in the 1930s. Uh, and German universities in the post-war period paid precious little attention to this central element. Mm -hmm. of undergraduate education. But now it is being reintroduced uh, in a variety of ways in the best of these in universities uh, today. And so that, uh, to, to kind of stress a point here, that, that, that wind of freedom included not just a concern with the sciences, but a real appreciation for and commitment to kind of a robust engagement with the humanities, so those kind of enduring questions of the human experience that we think of here as in the arts and humanities. Absolutely, absolutely central. Philosophy, history, literature, uh, without without question. And of course, Humboldt himself was a man of the Enlightenment. Um, um, he was not a specialist. And in fact, um, his um, tenure in office in establishing uh, this university was stunningly short. Uh, but uh, his influence was profound. And then the influence of what become known as Humboldtian ideas takes on almost a life of its own over the course of the 19th century. And, but um, even the German university, as you've already kind of, of hinted in, in talking about the, the 1930s, um, goes through some enormous vicissitudes and deep and profound challenges and transformations. Uh, 
partly I, in response to World War I, but obviously especially the Nazi era, World War II, and the, the, the post-war and Cold War um, era. And uh, maybe I could ask you to trace uh, some of the decline and then reconstruction of the great German research university, especially as it uh, emerges uh, in the more recent period and the kind of um, excellence initiatives since the falling of the, the Berlin Wall that, that have made such a difference. Yeah. Well, of course, Nazism uh, and um, communism of the Soviet sort were not great for Chinese uh, for German universities after 1933 or after 1949 with the founding of the German Democratic Republic. Uh, the universities physically destroyed during the war has to be rebuilt, uh, and it becomes a Sovietized university, much smaller, more focused, highly politicized, um, and. It is. It leads to the founding of an alternative type of university just in the city of Berlin, in the Freie Universität Berlin, mm -hmm. uh, founded uh, in, to some degree on American models in 1948, founded by students fleeing from the old University of Berlin, which is now called the Humboldt University. And uh, you have a, an extraordinary tension and implicit even during the time of the Berlin Wall competition between these two models uh, of universities. Now that the wall has fallen and then Berlin is unified, what's interesting, and this is how I actually began thinking seriously about this project, is when I went to the 200th anniversary of the Humboldt University in a big conference on the original model, as it was called, in 2010, the president of the university welcomed us all by saying, this is in the old building in downtown Berlin, nobody would take my university as a model for anything today. He was very quickly no longer the president <laughs> of the Humboldt University. But what was interesting that Humboldt, this great university, uh, the University of Berlin was no longer the best university in the world, not the best university in Germany, and not even the best university in Berlin. And this Freie Universität Berlin, through its own very it's an uh, interesting history with a lot of near-death experiences uh, has emerged as the leading one in that city, but the leading one in the humanities in, the, in, in, in all of Germany, and has reinvented itself, not the least, by taking advantage of this competition, this forced competition among universities to be excellent, to find new ways of defining excellence. This is the whole point of the German Excellence Initiative. And the FU, the Free University, has done a simply remarkable job uh, in 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 doing that. And Humboldt, not so much. Uh, uh, and you know, it's not a surprise. Competition can lead to extraordinary innovation uh, if if it's done in the right way. And, and this particular competition of the Excellence Initiative has had very substantial benefits to what one can can consider. Uh, the beginnings of a rebirth of German universities. Not that they're going to set global standards again, but they do have ideas, again, that others can learn from. And some of this um, transformation, especially in the era of the excellence initiatives, was generated, right, by what could be termed a, an era of, of 
disinvestment or at least financial constraint, right? That 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 the universities so, had had experienced. Yeah, I mean these universities. I was a student at the Free University of Bergen after college. I had what was called through the German Academic Exchange Service. I had what was called a Luftbrückendank Stipendium, an airlift thank you grant from the city of Bergen, uh, recalling the airlift of 1948. Um, and when I was there, this place was total chaos, creative chaos, very leftist, founded as an American, pro-American university uh, to some degree, now very anti-American during the latter part of the Vietnam War, uh, very difficult to govern. Um, I took a seminar on Marx. I think there were 15 students in the class. And there were six different communist parties. <laughs> yes. Very exciting. And then the university massifies in the 70s and 80s balloons to nearly 60,000 students. It was only 18,000 or 16,000 or so when I was there. Now it has gotten smaller and better. Financially, financial constraint leading to real hard, but on the whole, excellent decision making. Uh, in the in the free universities, bigger is not always better, and and sometimes, you know, they, it's a question that I ask really for Chinese universities later on in the book, but it's worth asking for the Germans and the Americans. The question is not how good you are when the money keeps flowing in, is how good you are when it stops, and it really did stop after the fall of the wall. Berlin didn't have the money to support three large research universities as it inherited, uh, and change had to happen. And the FU did it better, faster, uh, more intelligently than anybody else. There was an early thread in your discussion of uh, the uh, era when Humboldt was pioneering this modern research university, and it had to do with the role of students and student demands and social protest from students, which, you know, again, I think I naively did not take as kind of a, a, a standard occurrence throughout history in the experience of colleges and universities, but clearly it is. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. You're just you're just seeing it firsthand yourself. Yeah, now I'm seeing it firsthand. But but this was striking just to see how uh, routine that that process uh, and in many ways often positive transformation coming out of of those demands and judges. Not not always as we'll we'll get to in a bit here. But but that it has been a distinctive uh, recurrent feature of of what the interaction between a professoriate and young, inquisitive, ambitious, rambunctious students uh, tend to produce. Absolutely right. You, <laughs> you know, you, you, you're giving it every day, Gary. <laughs> this is so true. So true. Um, I guess maybe this is the point to think about connecting this to when Harvard, a major American private uh, institution, begins to move toward the German model 
and uh, in in particular to think about, I guess, uh, the presidency of Elliot, who seemingly is the one who really ushers in that the the foundation of this new golden era, uh, if you will, for for Harvard. And so, what does what does President Elliot bring to Harvard that 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 moves it so decisively? Well, he was not again, and it's an interesting thing about our modern history. But uh, having set many of the standards of American higher education, uh, Harvard was not a first mover at that time. Um, uh, and indeed, he initially resisted the idea of adopting uh, a German model of education. And he never really did for undergraduate education, which is probably to, to some degree to our benefit. Uh, but he did, uh, at least because he had a wholly elective system as you may remember, but uh, it's the, the obvious success of alternatives. If you see what's happening at Hopkins in Chicago um, uh, and uh, the sense of his own faculty uh, on their own going to Germany for advanced study, not, if, not, not always for doctorates, but sometimes for doctorates, uh, and the idea that graduate education uh, in the arts and sciences is going to be the most powerful way forward for a research institution, for a research-oriented institution to make its mark in the world and on society. Uh, this leads to the founding of the Graduate School uh, of Arts and Sciences now almost exactly, if I'm not mistaken, 150 years uh, this year. Mm -hmm. uh, and Harvard, as great as Harvard College was and is, and as distinguished as uh, our early professional schools, the medical school, law school, divinity school, uh, and as great as our more recent professional schools, business school, ed school, Kennedy school, public health have all been, it is the graduate school of arts and sciences that has defined Harvard as a leading research university. Uh, and its graduates, the ones that then go out and populate the faculty of American, European, and now East Asian universities. This is the kind of source of the most enduring influence of our institution. Um, I think when Elliot started it, who knew how powerful this would be? But it really has, is at the heart of, of Harvard's rise to global prominence uh, as a university, as opposed to as a teaching college or a series of of uh, pro excellent professional schools. Uh, which is not to say that, that Eliot or his successors got everything right uh, in this era. As you say, Harvard was often following suit uh, from, from other leaders here, but this was certainly still a period when um, women really had no place uh, right. at, at Harvard, uh, underrepresented mm -hmm. minorities as well, uh, just... Um, not featured in the thinking uh, of of who belonged, or and likewise the the quotas on uh, Jewish enrollment uh, in those eras. Well, certainly, certainly, you know, we have, you know, as I put in the book, the longest, at least Harvard itself. Now we have to recognize the importance of Radcliffe as a separate institution and a related institution. Where um, <clears throat> later on there was there, there one could get, and uh, extraordinary scholars did get doctorates at Radcliffe. Um, but uh, 
that aside, we have because we're older, we have the longest tradition of discrimination against women uh, than any yeah, university in the United States. Uh, uh, a famous era of discrimination against Jews, blacks, and many others mm -hmm. uh, through the particularly actually Elliot is uh, more open minded than this than uh, his successor. Lowell, his successor Lowell, yes. Uh, who was a notorious anti-Semite. Um, and so, <clears throat> but through all this, I would say it's fair to say that, uh, and it's still true today, is that we don't discriminate. Uh, and, uh, you know, as our lawsuit is going forward, we do, we, I am quite convinced that we do not discriminate in our undergraduate education and uh, against any particular group. Although we are more biased toward people who are American citizens, if you look at the enrollments. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, we probably have a certain degree of affirmative action for men. Uh, otherwise, how do you end up at 50-50 uh, undergraduate enrollments? You do have to have a football team after all, <laughs> but we're not alone in this. But GSAS, the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences, admitted by departments, your department, my department, is the most meritocratic part of Harvard and of any university. And we admit people simply on the basis of merit wherever they are from. Uh, and that has been the, a powerful push forward for our world as a research university. Absolutely. Um, now, uh, Elliot's successors, uh, each in a fashion, introduced some kind of lasting and more often leading change. Uh, so Lowell kind of creating the, the, the house system and the establishment of concentrations or majors and minors kind of becoming a more lasting imprint of the major uh, research uh, university. And even more rigorous consideration of faculty tenuring processes, right? So that uh, uh, happens there. And, but then it's really the, the, the Conant era that, that weds Harvard even more uh, intensively to a sense of U.S. national mission, uh, uh, especially uh, around the World War II uh, era, and then even more consequentially with the GI Bill and its um, consequences for for higher um, higher ed education and and learning. Uh, but then maybe I should skip ahead to Pusey because that may be one of the lasting. Um, uh, transformations of the modern research university is the need for a university president to be fundraiser in chief. Uh, if, yes. <laughs> if that isn't isn't something that has now become a hallmark of at least how these universities survive, if not so much and thrive, if if not so much the the guiding philosophy of the the institution and its practices. Right, and under under Pusey, of course the position of uh, Dean of FAS becomes a much stronger position than it's ever been before. It really begins under Conant, uh, uh, who is so consumed uh, and is often in Washington during the war. Um, but in Pusey, you also have uh, kind of the, not the beginning of, because it's there in embryo, but as the, but as, uh, as, as Harvard grows in size and as the professional schools grow in size and in reputation, the growing decentralization of the university, the every tub on its own bottom financial model and so on, really take off in a way that is one of the distinguishing and not always positively distinguishing features mm -hmm. uh, of Harvard today. 
uh, and uh, Pusey's, you know, is, is, since uh, he, it spans two eras, uh, the first one, as in Conant's, at least uh, with the holdover from Conant's of a sense of connection to a national mission, uh, tested in part uh, by the unease about the Korean War, but then blown apart by the divisions of the Vietnam War. Mm -hmm. and, um, and it is, of course, both faculty and student, but particularly student protest over the Vietnam War that is a major rupture. When you think about it, we just take one example. Franklin Ford, one of my mentors, uh, uh, was like so much of the Harvard History Department during World War II seconded into OSS uh, to help the government research the world in which we were then fighting. Um, and uh, the predecessor of the CIA, which is OSS. Uh, and then Ford, decades later, is dean of the Faculty of Arts and Sciences uh, and dragged out of University Hall uh, in the occupation of University Hall by students in 1969, suffers a stroke, uh, um, uh, resigns from it. Pusey's presidency is over. That is the moment of rupture really uh, at the Harvard scene, you know, between uh, national mission and educational mission. That connection, of course, still exists. Otherwise, you wouldn't have such extraordinary federal funding of research at Harvard today. Uh, and uh, and many, many Harvard faculty members serving uh, happily and successfully in government. But that sense of institutional that they that the alignment between the purposes of the institution and the and the policies of the country are closely aligned, that has never really recovered, not just at Harvard, but um, in many universities from the turmoil of the Vietnam War era, which of course ended Pusey's presidency. Yep, I. Uh... I'm kind of conscious of our, our time together here and maybe this era of protest and connection of universities to a sense of national mission may be the point to think about the role of our uh, major public research universities and in particular the University of California, the Berkeley uh, case. And um, certainly once and arguably still today, uh, the most highly ranked and leading of the uh, public research universities uh, in the U.S., but one now facing very, very, very serious challenges, uh, in part, I, I guess, due to a confluence of something you've already spoken to a bit, the kind of public disinvestment in higher education, but in part also to other uh, social trends, uh, in including some elements of its own design, the nature of its governance, uh, which is something we haven't talked about quite as much yet. Yeah, every university has its own form of governance, some of them more successful than others. Much Sometimes in the case of Harvard, uh, they, uh, it depends on the individuals um, uh, leading the corporation and, of course, can depend on the individuals in the presidency yes. or in, di in different deanships. Uh, Certainly from the free speech movement of the 1960s onward, Berkeley has, but it really has actually right, almost from the beginning in the 19th century, a robust culture of protest, um, a very robust protest, uh, culture of protest, and a robust culture of 
uh, uh, forms of democratic governance on the part of the faculty through an academic senate, the Berkeley branch of the UC Academic Senate, uh, in which all faculty members, including emeriti, um, can take part. Uh, it, it doesn't have a board of its own. You know, we have two boards at Harvard, uh, the corporation and the board of overseers, but Berkeley has no board of its own that is an official uh, fiduciary board. It's uh, subject to the state board of regents. Uh, and of course, part of this great system of the University of California itself. But it is, you know, on the positive side, and I'm sitting here in Berkeley as we speak, uh, right near this gorgeous campus uh, in this beautiful state, which would not be the rich, uh, extraordinary, extraordinarily prosperous place that it is today without the University of California. Right, absolutely. Uh, and yet that system is under enormous, enormous stress. The state paid nearly 100% of, uh, of uh, UC and particularly Berkeley's uh, costs uh, through the 1970s. Uh, it now pays a little bit more than 10% wow. uh, of those of those costs. And that is true in many states around the country, but Berkeley was particularly slow in part because of a kind of a culture of dependency on the state, uh, uh, which led to, in my view, a lack of entrepreneurialism on the part of the university. Uh, and also a... Uh, uh, a culture uh, in which faculty would not ex would complain uh, about funding cuts, but really not participate in finding solutions to them uh, easily. That uh, the university uh, became more and more difficult to govern. Not a not a surprise. The more impoverished it became, and the greatest blow was really after the Great Recession of two thousand and eight. This had come and gone in many uh, earlier periods. But I witnessed then as a uh, somebody who was doing a what we would call a visiting committee for one segment of the Berkeley faculty, then a real sudden decline in the spirit of collaboration and the optimism that had always defined Berkeley faculty. You know, I've always found when I was dean, Berkeley faculty were among the most difficult to recruit. Stanford also problematic, but the, uh, and, and it wasn't just the weather. It was their sense of commitment to the public mission of the university. Uh, that really has changed to some degree. Uh, and, uh, and again, it's very difficult to, you know, and so the university has had to expand considerably its undergraduate body in order to pay the bills. Uh, it has had to do a great deal other things, but it's, its leadership capacity in public higher education is absolutely at risk. And as I say in this book, if places like Berkeley uh, or Michigan uh, or the University of Washington in Seattle, if the great public universities in this country decline, and they will with this level of uh, public distrust of them and uh, defunding of them, then Harvard, Stanford, Chicago, we will all decline because we compete for the same faculty and the same graduate students. Mm -hmm. And competition is at the heart of excellence in our industry as in any other. And let's think about um, uh, the role that the Duke example plays here. And I guess maybe there, 
readiness to establish international ties as something that has figured in their rise and success? Or, or what is the ingredients to their success in the more recent era? Yeah. So in this book, uh, just to let your listeners know, I, I describe Duke as the in, as it's one of the case studies, and it's the rap, most rapidly rising research university in the United States. And how, how does it do it? It gets this enormous gift from James B. Duke in the 1920s and 30s to build this beautiful neo-Gothic campus in Durham, North Carolina. Um, uh, it looks like a great university. Mm -hmm. uh, it even has steps to its chapel that are designed that are curved as if from from the beginning curved as if worn by generations of scholars even though it's brand new but they knew they weren't a great university it's a parochial place in a segregated south you know that that university that beautiful structure uh of the of the neo-gothic campus was designed uh by an african-american architect from philadelphia who in that era of segregation never saw his creation oh wow yeah um, so in the 1950s, they understand that they look great and they know they aren't. How are they going to become a good university? And they begin a set, it becomes part of their DNA of planning for the future. What are they going to stop doing? What are they going to continue to do? How do they measure success in an era before formal rankings? How do they see themselves in comparison, say, uh, with regional public universities, then later on with Ivy League universities and other large research universities. They do so relentlessly, but also openly on the campus. So they have a culture of being very open with themselves about what they're not good at and what they can be good at. And they have a planning process which is much more participatory, much more opening, open. Uh, and unlike ours, our, you know, Harvard's uh, academic plans, by and large, uh, seem to happen only in the context of fundraising campaigns. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's not the case in the Duke operation. And Harvard has strong academic planning in the different schools of the university. Um, but it, I don't believe that the one academic plan that is university-wide, uh, which was a very strong one under Neil Rudenstein, also happened in the context of a university campaign, uh, but it was at least based on the academic goals uh, that emerged from that planning. So they have this culture of, of planning and it is, and this is an area in which we, because of our radical decentralization at Harvard, we are extraordinarily undistinguished, to put it mildly, in this regard. Mm -hmm. And the example that I give you know, at Harvard of this is our Alston campus. You know, just compare MIT and its neighborhood in Kendall Square in 1966 and Harvard and its neighborhood in Alston in 1966 with those same places today. Only one of them looks the same. Um, <laughs> Although it is now beginning to transform. It's beginning. Yes. It's yes. beginning. It's beginning, and so so um, I give huge credit uh, to um, uh, Larry Bacow's optimism and uh, and and determination to take this to another level. Yep. But it is, but it is 
really quite a remarkable thing that 25 years, quarter century after we acquired all that land, that we've managed to build one building. Yes, absolutely true. Let's fold in the China piece of the story more uh, explicitly here, and you focus really on uh, Tsinghua University, Nanjing, and um, the University of Hong Kong. And of course, they begin their um, uh, march down, I guess one could say, the, the New Silk Road, very much with the Harvard brand in mind, right? And indeed, you, yeah, I think there's this wonderful anecdote about uh, when Harvard opened its Shanghai uh, offices <laughs> that, that originally it couldn't be labeled Harvard because so many other places had already tried to copyright the name in China. <laughs> well, we have, this is, this is our great advantage in the world. The Harvard brand is known better than any across the world. There was already a Harvard University, it just wasn't us in Shanghai. <laughs> right. <laughs> There is a, right now, there's a best-selling Harvard SUV uh, by a major automobile right. maker. Um, uh, we, there's even a company that's called the Harvard Exam Sitters. People, allegedly from Harvard, who will take your exams for you. So there's no shortage of, uh, so we're the most famous brand in China, the most highly respected university without question in China. And we've been active in China for more than a century, you know, Harvard Medical School had a campus uh, in Shanghai uh, in the 19-teens. Uh, uh, the Harvard Yenjing Institute dates from the late 1920s. There's an extraordinary uh, intersection between Harvard and China over the years. And it's very strong. And one of the important things to remember is the, the great strength of Chinese universities today, and it is, and they are truly extraordinary institutions. This great strength has its foundations in the pre-communist era, in the building of institutions, public and then also private, Chinese as well as foreign, uh, that set out a, that built a small but powerful set of institutions in higher education that are, uh, is the baseline from which these institutions could grow after the madness of the Maoist period ended and that they could restart uh, again, and they know that history. Uh, and that's one in which we have intersection. So my teacher in Chinese history, John Fairbank, learned his Chinese history at Tsinghua University uh -huh. in the 19th. And uh, we had strong academic contacts with China. We are stronger as a university today. Uh, and this is why we have this center in Shanghai that you just referred to. Uh, because we, as a research university, need to intersect with the fastest growing se sector of higher education in the world in quality, as well as quantity, which is China. And so, so many of our faculty have joint research projects or uh, other initiatives that they wish to have with Chinese colleagues. And one thing I'll say right now uh, is that the current political environment threatens this very considerably. 
Um, and anything that threatens the free flow of ideas or of research uh, across national borders threatens us and every other research university uh, in the world. Fairbank once told me that one of his biggest regrets was the cutting off, not that he could stop it, the cutting off of academic ties between China and the US from the early 1950s to the early 1970s. It wasn't good for either country. Uh, and self-isolation uh, or pressures of self-isolation are uh, are growing in both of our countries. That's what I was going to say. I was going to ask you that, in effect, that that, that pressure, they're, they're kind of internal pressures in both nations uh, in that direction, right? And and uh, what's your part of your diagnosis is clearly is that that's that's problematic for both. But but what prospects do you see for the way out of that? Um, I think that this is actually something Larry Bacco, President Bacco, was extraordinarily articulate in speaking. We had a meeting with Xi Jinping yes. uh, in the year before COVID, and Larry not only gave an extraordinary speech at Peking University on quoting their iconic chancellor, Tsai Yuanpei from the early 20th century, uh, on the importance of freedom of speech, freedom of learning, freedom of teaching, he, we also talked with President Xi about our wish that universities are uh, have, be given the capacity to do things sometimes that governments cannot, and that we need to we need to pursue our work irrespective of tensions uh, uh, between national governments. He made it clear, President Xi did, that he wished to send more, not fewer, Chinese students to the United States. And he told us that he had told President Trump that if you, Trump, limit American students, uh, Chinese students going to the United States, you are giving a great gift to Europe. Uh, he's not limiting Chinese who go abroad, uh, but we have been the only ones limiting that uh, in our own growing parochialism. Wow, absolutely, right? absolutely. Uh, and uh, hopefully we don't, turn back on that uh, in any way in, in the near term. But uh, there there are pressures. And of course, Xi Jinping's power and control has only grown since that era. Uh, and, and that, that visit. That, that is true. Well, I don't I don't think our visit causes political success. No, there. no, no. Uh, so I, but let, I me, let me just let me Larry, let me just say one thing on this is that we are committed now coming out of COVID and coming out as we will, I hope, in a few months' time, out of China's zero COVID policy. We are determined, so those of us uh, helping to shape Harvard's China policy, that we will not only return in strength uh, to China, we, we've had for now 12 years this wonderful center in Shanghai, but to expand our footprint and to deepen our engagement with China. Because the, actually, this is our job as a research university to collaborate and work with great scholars the world over. And I know our Chinese counterparts want this to happen as well. And we have to work with them directly to make this happen. Because as I, as I wrote in a recent uh, editorial in the journal Science, a self-isolating China is a danger to itself and a loss to the world. And the same exact thing is true of the United States. Exactly. Thank you so much, Bill. I think this has been, for me, 
and uh, enormous education. I'm I'm delighted to uh, have read the book, and I thank you for I, reading it. I commend it to everyone. Empires of ideas, creating the modern university from Germany to America to China, uh, is just a fascinating and highly engaging read for anyone interested in and committed to life in the modern research u- university. It gives you a deep appreciation for the ideas of uh, that came out of, of von Humboldt and, and Germany and how it shaped the evolution of the institutions that we now inhabit and hope to pass on to future generations. So thank you for this uh, remarkable piece of scholarship, Bill. Thank you, Larry, for the opportunity to talk with you about it. It's a real pleasure. <laughs>